Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Peter Eisner about his new book, MacArthur's Spies, which chronicles the efforts of three Americans to resist the Japanese occupation of the Philippines in World War II. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Mark. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Sure. So I've been a journalist for a number of years, a foreign correspondent and an editor at uh, Newsday, the Associated Press, The Washington Post. And uh, I've also been on uh, te- television, a couple of uh, programs on PBS. Uh, I've been transitioning more and more toward uh, writing books. I had I had a long list to write, and I've been doing that for some time. And uh, MacArthur Spies is one in in a series of books that I've been writing about World War II. What was it that led you to write this book? Because it's not a standard military history of the conflict. It's not a uh, overall political history. It's something much more personal and uh, much more uh, nuanced. And frankly, something that, as you explain in the book, took a bit of uh, digging to uncover. As I said, this is the third book, and and I've actually done other uh, pieces of work about World War II. Uh, And the real reason, as I have to ask myself what's going on here, is uh, I'm, I'm the son of a, uh, a uh, Navy officer. Uh, my dad was uh, fought in World War II uh, in the Pacific. Uh, and like what is said about the great, greatest generation, it was just very true. He never wanted to speak about it very much. And I hear so many people as a as I travel around, agreeing with me, they know that their parents and in-laws fought in World War II, but they just know very little about it. And I think that's what really got me into working on this area of history. Another thing about it is that World War II is, is, is a period of absolutes. We could recognize an absolute evil, and we could also recognize a unity of purpose to fight that evil. And that makes for interesting uh, stories, interesting drama. That's, so that's one part of it. Another part of it is that the books that I write, rather than being histories, I select a person who may not necessarily be well-known or, or known at all in history, but stands very close to a significant uh, event in history. So the first one, for instance, I wrote uh, was about a 20-year-old B-17 pilot named Bob Grimes, who was shot down over Belgium in 1943 and and was rescued by a young group of of, uh, civilian uh, women who were were out looking for pilots who who, uh, were shot down and rescuing them from the Germans and and, uh, hiding them and moving them back to... uh, to be able to fight another day. 
But Bob Grimes, that character, was fighting in a major effort in, 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 in the battle to, to retake Europe. Then I wrote a story uh, about uh, Pope Pius XI, who was a pope just before the start of World War II, uh, not very well known. And, and my, one of my main characters was a Jesuit journalist who tried to help him uh, write material to challenge Hitler and Mussolini and anti-Semitism. So in each case, I look for a character who can be, we can move along with as they go through their moral journey to do something important. And that took me to, to this book, uh, MacArthur's Spies. One of the things I like about the book is, as you say, we view World War II as a war that fits nicely into moral absolutes. And yet, as you describe in the book, these are men and women who, even though the moral absolutes are clear, the choices they face are so complicated and nuanced. And I think that comes through in, in all of them, uh, but especially with your central character, Claire Phillips, who throughout the conflict had to make all sorts of decisions that were to both her intentions and to the more basic questions of her survival. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about Claire and, and, and how she had this very interesting pre-war life that you described, which in many ways made her ideally suited for this role that she assumed during the war itself. Indeed, the, the role of becoming a spy for Claire Phillips was not obvious and, and it was very strange uh, uh, trajectory. She, uh, when the war broke out, she was in her early 30s. Uh, she had been a nightclub singer and uh, on, on the vaudeville circuit in, in the, the Pacific Northwest in the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, and uh, she'd actually been married a number of times uh, that I that I, I finally discovered it, at least three or four times. And I couldn't discover many of the divorces. So she was a rather interesting person in that respect. She went off to the Philippines in probably in 1938. Uh, and it was a good moment to go to the Philippines, which at the time was an American commonwealth. And there were a number of expatriates there. And uh, she, she went looking for, for work as, as a nightclub performer and found it. Um, after a year or two, uh, she found herself, after traveling around a bit more, back in Manila in uh, the fall of 1941 with the sense around the Pacific that the Japanese were about to provoke the war that later came and uh, nevertheless saying that wouldn't happen to her. That wasn't a problem. She remained and um, found herself caught in Manila on December 8th, 1941 across the international date line. It, it was the re for the rest of us. It was December 7th, the day of infamy. And as many people don't focus on and don't realize just a few hours after the attack on Pearl Harbor, Manila and the Philippines came under attack by Japanese uh, planes. Uh, Claire fled to the hills, and the story really begins, and her change in her life really begins when she runs off to the hills of Bataan, and for the first time 
is doing more than an observer. She's be, she becomes a part of, of, of fighting the war slowly. Now, she doesn't run to the hill just out of – she's not you know, escaping bombing Manila necessarily. She's not seeking to become a guerrilla. As you described, she's, uh, she, she is engaged in a, an act of self-preservation. But as you explained, she's also involved in this relationship with this soldier – that proves to be very important in terms of her identity, and it's a very powerful motivation for her early on in the war. Yes, indeed. Claire, in fact, uh, her name, Claire Phillips, comes from the the young American uh, private that she met in those final weeks before the start of the war, John Phillips. Uh, she and she followed John Phillips up into Bataan as his unit um, went in retreat under orders uh, from General MacArthur. Uh, and uh, w- just within a few days of, of uh, MacArthur's order that, that the, uh, that the 10 to 20,000 American regulars and another 50 to some odd thousand uh, Filipinos uh, retreat, her hus- her, her, the man that she called her husband, John Phillips, uh, was off into the hills as well, and she was trying to track closely his movements along with him as as the retreat continues. And as you explain, this decision to follow him, which was one that she did, it wasn't just her, it was also her adopted daughter, Diane, but it was one that preserved her from the fate of so many other Americans that were in Manila when it fell to the Japanese in uh, December of 1941. One of the ones that you identified, and I should explain that while the, the, your focus is upon three uh, Americans in particular, you actually have uh, several others that play very prominent roles in your narrative, and also quite a few Filipinos. And one of them that, that uh, stands out is Roy Bennett. I was wondering if you explain a bit about him and his fate, which was both uh, typical of so many Americans uh, once, the, once the, the Japanese took the city, and also an example of uh, the, the, the extent to which the, the extremes the Japanese uh, occupiers sometimes went to. Sure. So the, let's take a look at the timeline. Uh, the, the Japanese attacked Manila uh, the same within hours of, of, uh, of Pearl Harbor, December 8th. It, it's clear to General MacArthur, who is in charge of U.S. forces in the Philippines, that there's no possible way to defend against a, a full expected attack by the Japanese. Uh, for all intents and purposes, supply lines and battle lines have been sliced in half by the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. So, uh, from the 8th to the 24th, just a, a little more than two weeks, it's clear that eventually MacArthur is going to go into a retreat mode to try to protect his forces. Uh, there are a number of other people in, in, uh, in Manila that become prominent in my story, um, and uh, they become especially prominent uh, after the, the retreat, which is December 24th, uh, Claire runs off uh, as well up to the hills. Uh, John, uh, John Phillips has, has run off to the hills. And then on January 2nd, 1942, the Japanese march unimpeded 
and unopposed into Manila itself. Uh, there are two other, um, three other characters to mention. One is, uh, is Roy Bennett, as you mentioned, who is the editor of the most important English language newspaper in Manila and one of the most important in, in, uh, in Asia, uh, the Manila Daily Bulletin. Uh, Bennett has been railing against the Japanese uh, throughout 1941 as relations with the United States collapse, warning that the Japanese uh, military leaders are creating a war machine that that will leave uh, the Philippines uh, undefended and and in great danger. Um, And he becomes more or less like a, a, a... a Cassandra figure in, in, in his warnings that, that go unheeded along with general MacArthur. He's been trying to rally, uh, Washington to send more and more reinforcements, which just don't come through. So January 2nd, when the Japanese march into town, uh, the, the final edition of, of, uh, Roy Bennett's, uh, newspaper is possibly only four pages with, an editorial in which he says, this is the day, there's, there's little more that can be done. Um, be calm, be careful, and, and we have no idea what's coming. Um, and he is one of the first uh, Americans that is, that is uh, rounded up by the Japanese. And uh, some thrown into prison and tortured, the majority of them civilians uh, who are gathered up and, and sent to a detention center at the uh, uh, centuries-old uh, University of Santo Tomas, which is in, in central Manila. So there you have it, uh, thousands of Americans being gathered up, uh, most of them civilians that are just being put into detention. Roy, Roy Bennett immediately seized and taken to a torture center where where he suffers many months before he can be released. And very few of the Americans uh, are able to escape. But Claire Phillips wisely, probably, and also in her nature, rather than being one of the civilians rounded up and put in a civilian detention center, she's run off and she's in the hills, maybe 50 to 75 miles uh, north of, of Manila, where she starts to tend to the the sick and wounded among the Filipinos who are who are under the gun as as shrapnel and bombs fall all around them. Another American who escapes uh, detention is Peggy Utinsky, and she has a, uh, rem- a, 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 a you know means of. of she has uh, a story that's in many ways just as remarkable in terms of Peggy's, in terms of Claire's. I was wondering if you could explain uh, how it was that she evaded uh, detention and how she ends up uh, playing a role in uh, Claire's uh, life as the occupation goes along. Peggy Utinsky, uh, another American, uh, had been in, in Manila for, for quite a long time, uh, serving as a nurse and uh by the, by the time of of, of uh, the attack uh, by the Japanese, she's working with uh, a doctor who's uh, tied in with the Red Cross. 
she immediately, as Claire starts to adapt uh, a different ID and fake fake identification, and and is taken to be not an American, but uh, with with her Slavic name and and with fake documents, she she's thought to be a Lithuanian, which is uh, a country that's on the side of 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 the Nazis and therefore the Japanese and uh, people of, uh, who are of uh, the Axis powers then would not be detained uh, as the Americans would, although she speaks like an American and such. Uh, uh, so Peggy remains uh, in Manila, actually hiding for weeks in her apartment, finally starting to sneak out, puts her, her life together, uh, makes contact again with her Red Cross doctors and starts uh, working and serving um, to, to help people that eventually become prisoners of war and uh, providing health services to them. So, so there she is, another American who might have otherwise ended up in detention, who's, who's operating uh, with a, with a, a, a fake ID and and um, serving the uh, effort against the Japanese. One of my favorite stories that you describe in there is when uh, she is being interrogated by a Japanese soldier who is pressing her on this fake identity of hers, and he asks her how to say uh, that she is a nurse in German. And it's, I was wondering if you could re recount that story because it's, it's, it's a, it, it gets to both, I think, sort of the advantages that they had in dealing with for, uh, occupiers of a different culture and also how flimsy sometimes their, uh, their, their uh, facades were. Right. Uh, uh, so fin finally, after working with the, uh, the, uh, Red Cross for such a long time. One one day, a Japanese soldier comes along and sees her and just assumes this is American and started screaming American, American, American. And, and she says, no, 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 no. Uh, nurse, nurse. The, the, her, the doctor starts saying uh, in Japanese, no, she's a nurse, she's a nurse. And so the, the Japanese slows down and, how, and says, well, how do you say uh, nurse in German then? And uh, she thinks very fast, and she has she doesn't speak a word of German, so so she basically says Deutscher Nursery Nursi. <laughs> uh, she know, Deutsch she knows, and Nursi is the only thing she could can't come up with, and she figured that Japanese wouldn't know any more than she did of of uh, of German, and and she gets away with that by saying Deutscher Nursi, which is she later then decided it would be a good idea to find out what the word was in German, but. Uh, she she got away with it and um, never was was uh, she was, she eventually was interrogated um, briefly uh, but nothing compared to others. Now, what we've been describing up to this point are civilians, and there was also though a very large military element that the uh, defeat of the American forces, the surrender, did not include all Americans, and you. Recount the resistance that develops to the Japanese, but you focus in particular upon these two very remarkable uh, people, one of whom is a naval reservist named uh, Chick Parsons, and this other uh, relatively uh, anonymous figure named John Boone, 
who comes to be a play this vital role not just in the insurgency but in uh, Claire's life. Yes, and one of the other parts of the story that became so important to me was, was to to use the story of these two men, Chick Parsons and John Boone, to show something that people don't really know anything about uh, uh, other than people that are closest most to, to the story and their own relatives, that that people have heard of the Bataan Death March, um, which in fact was was the result of the greatest uh, U.S. military surrender in history, uh, but and in which uh, hundreds of Americans and thousands of Filipinos died marching from uh, capture to, to a prisoner of war camp. But few people know that not everyone surrendered. That there were, were hundreds of Americans and, and, and many more Filipinos that rather than surrender, uh, were either um, caught uh, caught offline or just simply fled into the hills uh, and regrouped uh, in the course of 1942 and created an impressive uh, series of guerrilla units that coalesced and uh, were able to attack, harass, and help uh, MacArthur in his uh, struggle to get back to the Philippines. Uh, throughout the course of the war, they were, they were able to continue operating, though, though hunted down, sometimes attacked and in great danger. Um, they were never stopped. And so John Boone was one of those men who uh, was a, a, simply a, an army corporal up in Bataan, uh, ran off to the hills, uh, healed his wounds, and uh, st- was one of the earliest people to put together a guerrilla band um, several months after having de- doing so in, in the, the spring of 1942. Um, through an intermediary, a priest who is an intermediary, he learns uh, that there is an American woman in the hills tending to, to uh, the sick and wounded. And at the same time, this intermediary uh, tells Claire Phillips that there's an American soldier um, in the hills trying to put together uh, guerrilla units. And uh, they finally meet in the spring of uh, 1942. And Claire is still looking for John Phillips, her, her boyfriend, who, is, who by now has been shipped off further north, and she loses track of him early in the first few days of the war. And... Um, hoping that maybe uh, John Boone would know something about him. Uh, but, but much more important, this relationship develops, and Boone says, you could, you could serve us in an amazingly important purpose, which would be to go back down to Manila and help provide intelligence to us, ship it back up into the hills, and uh, we'd be able to, to work together to fight the Japanese, and she decides to do that. So that, so Boone is one of the people, but the other person to mention is, is a fabulously interesting person, um, uh, Chick Parsons, who, who has been living in Manila uh, for, for basically since childhood on and off. Uh, Parsons is a, uh, a businessman, import-export. Um, when the war breaks out, he's been running a, uh, 
a company that 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 imports and exports uh, heavy metals, uh, foodstuffs, and and such. In fact, he, his company is a Japanese company. Um, few people realized that at the same time that he was doing all these things, and by the time everybody knew him pretty well in the Philippines as a very popular polo player, he also had was in the uh, Naval Reserve as a as a submariner. Uh, so on December 8th, uh, he's called into uh, headquarters and um, is sworn in back into the to the regular forces of the Navy. He's a bit older now than, than most others. He's in his early 40s, but he's a tough guy. And he's sworn in and uh, designated as a spy. So here you have um, the three characters, Claire Phillips, who has run off to the hills, uh, John Boone, who's starting a guerrilla band, and and Chick Parsons, who's setting up uh, as a spy in Manila. And, of course, there, there's an amazing further story about, about Chick Parsons, who event, which eventually brings him to be in contact with both of those other two people, quite improbably, which is that he decided to stay in Manila when the Japanese invaded and was able to use his status uh, as an import-export person to declare himself not an American, but as the Spanish honorary consul, sorry, the Panamanian honorary consul in the Philippines, therefore uh, receiving diplomatic recognition for himself and his family uh, with a wonderful scene in which the Japanese, rather than arresting him, bow and say, um, it, you know, sorry for any inconvenience, sir. And uh, with the with suddenly the the the, uh, the Panamanian flag flying out front of his house, him no longer speaking English in public, speaking only Spanish. And here you've got Chick Parsons, uh, who who's developing himself as a master spy right under the nose of the Japanese. So it's an interesting, uh, fabulous uh, array of characters. Yeah, I like how when the Japanese finally drive him out of the Philippines, they don't do it by arresting him or interning him. They do it by putting him on a boat with a bunch of expatriates, and he gets to sail right back to the United States. Although, as you explain, as soon as he gets off the boat, he has a rather unwelcome reception courtesy of the FBI. Indeed, uh, uh, Parsons has been able to, to uh, operate and gather information uh, for the first six months of the war until June of 1942, uh, when finally uh, the first um, um, internationally sanctioned uh, uh, exchange uh, ship uh, leaves the Philippines headed for uh, first, first for Taiwan and eventually um, Hong Kong, and then uh, the Japanese exchanged their diplomatic and civilian inter international organization uh, prisoners uh, with the Americans. And and Parsons, who actually is smuggling information out in a very harrowing way, uh, leaves uh, Manila uh, in the first few days of June with his. Uh, children and his wife, and they take a circuitous route um, 
through through China, and then uh, the, a new ship that takes them to the coast of Africa, Rio de Janeiro, uh, northward. And and after about a two month journey, um, Parsons arrives in, in uh, with his family in New York Harbor in, uh, in August, and the FBI, which is out looking for spies. Uh, sees sees him uh, as as someone that they they don't know who he is. Uh, he says he's someone named Chick Parsons. Chick Parsons on their records is listed as missing in action, and uh, he's immediately uh, put into into detention as a spy for a number of days until finally um, uh, he's able to get, make contact with the. Philippine government in exile, along with uh, the Navy Department, that says, "Let him go and send him to Washington for heaven's sake." And and by September first, nineteen forty-two, Parsons is back um, in uniform at the Pentagon and um, trying to see what he can do to help the war effort. I, I like how, as soon as MacArthur gets this information, he basically sends this telegram saying, send me Chick Parsons, and he goes right back and, 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 and continues to cultivate this uh, network of uh, of contacts and, and, and this effort to maintain the insurgency. A lot of people don't realize that, that General MacArthur had been in Manila himself for a number of years before the war. Uh, his father had been a a, 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 a hero during the, uh, the Spanish-American War in Manila. Um, he spent a lot of time there as a young man and was brought back in the early 1930s to run the Philippine uh, Constabulary Army. And uh, in that in that period, he he and uh, Chick Parsons got to know each other socially and and. Um, and uh, MacArthur certainly knew Parsons' capabilities. And at that time, uh, MacArthur had first moved with his men to uh, Bataan and then was ordered by uh, President Roosevelt in March to uh, withdraw from the Philippines and set up uh, the offensive uh, response to the Japanese from Australia. So um, MacArthur then starting in, in uh, April, is, is running uh, uh, Southern Pacific headquarters in, the, in uh, Australia and eventually starts hearing uh, radio messages that are coming across from the Philippines that there is, in fact, a guerrilla insurgency. And he has no way to assess it, no way to deal with it. And around that same time, word comes through that Parsons is, in fact, safe out of the Philippines and in Washington. So then comes through that telegram, send Parsons immediately. And Parsons is, is, is standing before MacArthur uh, just after uh, July 1st, 1943, uh, with a, a request that, that's more like an order, um, get back to the Philippines and let's figure out what's going on with this guerrilla insurgency. And MacArthur, uh, MacArthur's... Um, request received, uh, Parsons within a month is running a submarine uh, insurgency operation out of Australia that runs throughout the war um, that that really changed the face of what was going on in the Philippines. Uh, 
uh, a remarkable operation called Spiron. Dozens of, of uh, secret um, uh, submarine trips, tons of materiel being moved in, uh, spies moving back and forth. And, and meanwhile, on, gr- on ground in, uh, during these trips, uh, Parsons is organizing this amazing guerrilla insurgency. By the point, by the time he starts doing that, uh, Claire already has her own operation up and running in Manila. I was wondering if you could explain how it was that she was able to come back to Manila and begin this remarkable operation out of the Subaki Club. As as mentioned, uh, Boone had John Boone had asked her to go back down to Manila. And uh, he helped her get back, back down to Manila, along with some of her, the friends that she'd been living with those months in the hills. Uh, though she was attending to, to the, the sick and wounded, she herself was by now ill with malaria and a, and a series of other tropical diseases. But she eventually, um, uh, getting back to Manila, she, she's nursed back to health. And, and then she has, she has the ability... Uh, to to use her presence, uh, um, having had another one of her other marriages, she was actually married to a Filipino all the time while she was um, chasing after John Phillips. Um, she's able to declare herself as as a Philippine national by marriage, and uh, not still not detained, and rather than. Uh, maintaining a, a quiet lifestyle, not her style at all, she decides to open a nightclub and follow through with, with what Boone suggested. She opens Tsubaki Club. Tsubaki means the flower camellia in Japanese. And in October of 1943, sorry, in October of 1942, it opens uh, Tsubaki Club, catering to Japanese officers and uh, high-class uh, Filipinos who work with them uh, in, a, in a prominent location not far from, from the docks where the Japanese ships come in and out. And um, she has put together an operation which uh, includes a lot, a lot of uh, beautiful young women whose job is to circulate among the Japanese officers as they, as they, uh, the floor show goes on, Claire singing, some of the hostesses double as, as, uh, dancers and, and singers. There's beautiful music, American standards, Hawaiian band and such. And what they do is collate, uh, little scraps of information. Where are you going? They ask, don't leave me, they ask the uh, soldiers, uh, smitten, smitten with love by beautiful women. And uh, at the end of the night, gathering up names, uh, locations, destinations, they're able to put together a, an excellent uh, uh, list of names and, and, and intelligence com- uh, material, which they then are, are able to periodically send up to John Boone in the Hills um, to, to fulfill the job of, of, of trying to, to oppose, fight, and fight the Japanese and eventually send information on to MacArthur back in Australia. As you explained, though, they don't just send information to Boone. They're actually using the club to help finance him. 
uh, not just directly, but also by buying a lot of the uh, medical supplies and, and other uh, goods that he and his men in the hills need to fight the Japanese. So you have the situation, which which I, I found to be hilarious, of how the Japanese uh, are, are, are fighting this insurgency, and yet they're also unwittingly helping to finance it. It's true. Uh, John Boone was able to send down uh, regular uh, requests for the type of material he needed. Um, anything from um, from uh, carbon paper to uh, pencils and typewriter. Even uh, he even tried to get, Claire even tried to get him the parts of a radio transmitter, which never quite uh, worked out. But she tried, and uh, along with that, medicine, uh, food. Anything she could possibly get up to him. And at the same time, she was using the funds she gathered together to uh, provide food and medicine and um, also morale support to the prisoners uh, who had survived the horrendous Bataan Death March, who were in a, uh, a camp called Cabana Tuan, uh, about 75 miles north of Manila. And a combination uh, of, of what she was doing was was really saving lives, fighting the war, and she, at the same time she was risking her life uh, every moment that entire period. As you described, it's that efforts with the POWs that brings her into contact with Peggy Utinsky. And as you explained, their relationship is complicates probably a, 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 a both an effective and a, a simplified way, way of describing uh, how the two women got along. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon uh, their relationship and some of the dynamics that drove it. It's a very interesting relationship, um, and, and I've, I've dug into it in ways that, that, that hadn't uh, come up in detail previously. Um, Peggy was only about five or six years older than Claire, but Claire was, she was just attractive and she was a singer and she was, she was long legged and, um, everybody liked her. And, uh, Peggy was kind of like, um, not that she was kind of dowdy and, and, uh, people called her the old lady. And, uh, they actually had something in common, which was that as Claire was was searching for her boyfriend, John Phillips, Peggy was searching for her husband, Jack, who, who was uh, a civilian engineer and, and um, working with the army. Uh, and in the end, they found out terribly um, uh, early in 1943 that both men had died uh, at the, the prisoner of war camp, Cabanatuan. Uh, it was it was a blow for both of them. Claire Claire um, write, wrote in her diary that she was she was drinking too much and and uh, it, she couldn't get over uh, the suffering that uh, of, of John uh, Phillips's death. Peggy Peggy didn't seem to have any outlet for for the grief that she felt for her husband, and she started drinking excessively, becoming dangerous. Uh, they, they had put together an underground uh, supply operation, and uh, Peggy was sometimes um, drunk or angry and, and fighting and uh, even sometimes threatening to turn them all into the Japanese. She was very so, – so there was that element. But, but I think that also there was another element that became clear 
and co comparing notes between the women uh, during and after, Peggy was just jealous of Claire. People just, she just did, couldn't understand why Claire uh, got along so well and people liked her so much. And um, Peggy just, her personality just didn't lend to that. So, so there was, there was a jealousy uh, element in all of this. I wonder to what degree that might also have played into her, uh, uh, her affection for Diane, because you described at a later point in the war, and we'll get to how this came about in just a minute, uh, Peggy spends several months taking care of Claire's adopted daughter, and she develops a real affection for the young girl. She did, and uh, she, to the point where um, on two occasions um, – Diane has come back to Claire when, when, when Claire is free uh, and Claire gets back to Manila. And then, then again, later um, Diane, who was a, a, a little, a, a Filipina uh, girl when the war starts, maybe two years old and then, you know, five years old by the end of the war. And Claire was, was consternated that when sometimes when she would see Diane after long pauses, Diane didn't even recognize who she was. Yet uh, Peggy had her uh, uh, later in the war for a, for a number of months, and and she just hated the idea that she had to to part with her at the end of the war. She she had just fallen for for the child. So that was another element. In the, the, at the same time, one has to say that that um, Claire thought of Peggy as a friend, and and she was the one that that had to take care of of. Uh, as Diane, as we'll find out when, when Claire is not around to do it at the, toward the end of the war because she's been captured. And, and, she just, and Peggy was a friend not just in terms of taking care of Diane, but when uh, Claire develops an ulcer, Peggy is instrumental in, in saving her life. In fact, you, you make that, you, you come right out and say that. Had it not been for Peggy, Claire probably would have died from that ulcer in, in I think it was uh, 43, uh, late 43? Right, uh, Claire um, collapsed at the club one one night late late in nineteen for in September of nineteen forty three. Um, her friends at the at the club uh, knew of me immediately to call uh, Peggy, who's a nurse, and Peggy was able to find a way to get her to the hospital. Not an easy task. Um, There's no gasoline. You couldn't find a car, but managed to get her to a hospital. Managed to find the best doctor available, and and um, and nursed her back to health, which was not that easy. Uh, Claire ended up developing a case of, uh, of lockjaw and, and, and this was really dangerous and anti-tetanus uh, medicine was very hard to come by. And, um, Claire nearly died and owed her life to Peggy and never, um, in later years, uh, always remembered, you know, no matter what anyone said about her, she owed a debt, a great debt to uh, Peggy. So Claire has this operation, and she has a, a code name, uh, High Pockets, and she's engaging this in intelligence gathering. She's gathering uh, resources. She's making this contribution, and she's doing so right under the noses of the Japanese. I was, I was wondering if you could I explain a bit you know, some of the tensions that she faced and, and how the Japanese were, were trying their best to not just break down the uh, insurgency, but to track down people like Claire 
during the occupation. The Japanese were somewhat understaffed in the Philippines. They expected to have, to have made easier work of subjugating the Philippines, which they were never able to do because of the, the guerrillas in the hills, and they knew there was an underground in Manila, and they were always looking for them. And so, so after a while, they came to know that there was a woman named High, High Pockets, and or was a person named High Pockets. They had no idea it was the same person that was running the nightclub where they they uh, many of the uh, of them favored to to go uh, in, on their off hours, but eventually. Uh, in in their uh, uh, gathering of, of information, the Japanese military police called the Kempei Tai, uh, a, a very tough, uh, brutal organization, um, sending out uh, troops to gather up guerrillas and, and gathering in- intelligence, sending uh, double agents to try to, to try to track people down, started to become suspicious of Claire. But she she managed to uh, to avoid uh, the any any attempts to, to to track her down and to figure out who she really was. But then finally, um, there was a break point in which uh, some one of their runners uh, was captured uh, in April of 1944, uh, which led finally. Uh, uh, step by step to many of the members of the organization being hauled in um, and uh, interrogated, which in turn, in early May, led to Claire being uh, uh, confronted uh, by the Kempeitai uh, and, and said, we know you're high pockets. And they, they, they uh, dragged her to a series of, of dungeons, uh, uh, tortured her, tried to gather information, and fortunately, uh, in a complicated way, they, they only knew that High Pockets was sending food and uh, medicine to the p- prisoners of war. They never realized that this same person, High Pockets or Madame Tsubaki, they never knew the name Claire Phillips, was actually sending intelligence information to uh, someone named uh, John Boone in the hills. If they would have known that, she would have been murdered within minutes. So still she was sentenced to death, but she, her, her sentence was finally commuted to, to 10 years at hard labor, and she was imprisoned uh, when the Japanese were finally uh, um, under attack with M- MacArthur's return to the Philippines in 1944 and 1945. So she was released. So she is released by the Americans when they uh, recapture the Philippines. And she goes, she undergoes this remarkable journey in a very short period of time from being a Japanese prisoner to being an American celebrity. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit on how it was that she achieved this, even though she still has this very suspicious story that, that has a lot of Americans uh, questioning uh, her, and also uh, an alienation of some of the people she's been working with in terms of the feeling that they had that she's claiming too much credit for what they did. Claire was released uh, with uh, a number of other women at a women's prison uh, in uh, February of 1945. She'd been imprisoned from May of 1944 to February of 1945. She and the others, all everyone under 
everyone in Manila, but certainly people imprisoned were were slowly starving, and uh, she she was very weak and and uh, and not very well at all. Um, when she was released, uh, she was taken to a hospital. Uh, the Americans were by now slowly um, they they'd arrived. Uh, MacArthur had returned in October of 1944. American troops marching across the Philippines are taking control of Manila in February of 1945, though at a, at a horrendous toll, tens of thousands of civilians uh, dying as the Japanese uh, uh, resist. But anyway, Claire is, is in, a, in a relatively safe zone, taken to a field hospital, and as she's recovering, a, an American uh, foreign correspondent uh, named Frederick Payton uh, gets wind of the fact that she was she was a, an operative during the war and she had just been released and starts interviewing her. And the story um, immediately becomes a bit uh, entangled and she starts getting stuck in over supplying details like, for instance, who is this guy, John Phillips? Well, it's my husband. Um, but w what about the fact we know that there's a Filipino husband? And but in short, um, Frederick Payton writes uh, an article that appears uh, in Reader's Digest in, in, in uh, May and June of 1945, just as Claire and the first uh, uh, released prisoner ship uh, is just leaving the Manila, uh, returning on a circuitous route to avoid the battles that are still going on in the Pacific, and returns um, in uh, June of 1945 to Los Angeles, where by now uh, an American uh, Army uh, public relations officer is waiting at the docks, and uh, Claire and Peggy are both on the ship, but Claire is the one that they're waiting for. And she's in the course of, of a month, she's become a national celebrity and immediately is, is on network radio is being interviewed and in the newspaper. And uh, it, it was an America already had been at war for a couple of years and they and Americans were looking for heroes and she had become one of them. And, uh, and the story starts, uh, uh, taking up fire and she starts believing her the own the exaggerations that she started with one or one or two end up becoming more and more exaggerations and uh pretty pretty far along uh in the story she starts um believing a lot of of the fiction that's that's being woven as uh finally a uh a, she writes a memoir with a with a hollywood scriptwriter who really diverges further yet from Claire's real story. And, uh, that, uh, memoir, I was in, a, uh, it was called Manila Espionage. Um, as was intended, uh, is, is the meat for a film that comes out in 1951. I was an American spy, which by then has almost nothing to do with her real story. So, so she has this celebrity, but, but and, and She's also seeking compensation, and that's a part of, of the of, of the war that you don't often hear about, which is how many of the Americans uh, after the war who participated in these efforts, 
did seek this compensation. And, and here's where Peggy is able to steal a proverbial march upon her uh, in that she's able to get compensation. But Claire is making these claims based upon the amount of money that she has spent sustaining John Boone's operation. And this ultimately gets her into a bit of trouble, doesn't it? It does indeed. So early in, 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 in the first months after uh, the war is over in 1946, the United States is quite magnanimous in, in providing funds to civilians and, and promising that uh, the Filipino veterans of, of the U.S. Army are going to be compensated for their months of service. And um, Peggy files quickly um, asking for money that, um, that she spent in, in putting together supplies for the POWs. Um, remember, again, that Claire was the only one that was supporting the guerrillas. Peggy was providing food to, to the POWs along with, with Claire and, and their underground unit. Um, and and in, with that magnanimity, um, the United States gives Peggy um, thousands of dollars in restitution without any backup required. She just made a list of what she she spent and they just pay, they give her the money. Um, Claire is... Is, is somewhat slower in filing for restitution. In the meantime, um, the, uh, Congress decides that, that the, the restitution that the United States is going to have to pay is too much, and they start making it harder and harder to pay restitution. Uh, for instance, the Filipino veterans of, of the war suddenly are not getting paid the money that they thought they were going to get paid. And someone like Claire... Uh, has a much harder time in uh, in putting together proof for the first time that she spent the money that she said she spent and that she had the money that she said she had. Um, it's a long process, but in the end, uh, both Claire and and uh, Peggy and their friends uh, receive uh, the Medal of Freedom uh, authorized by uh, eventually by President Truman, but Claire is repeatedly denied her right to restitution to the point where in 1953 uh, she sues the government for, for uh, funds lost and uh, a very bruising four-year uh, uh, process takes place in, in federal uh, court called the U.S. Court of Claims in which remarkable uh, uh, events take place in which all of the old friends um, uh, appear to testify and see each other for one last time, Peggy, um, Claire, and a lot of their friends, and even John Boone, who comes in and actually uh, supports Claire's uh, claims to the degree to which he can. Uh, yet in the end, Claire bitterly receives a fraction of what she thought she was owed, and um, uh, at the same time, her reputation is... is is highly questioned by by uh, by government lawyers who who have been comparing her to Peggy and uh, claiming basically that the nightclub that she was running was was tantamount to prostitution and she was a person of ill repute compared to Peggy. Um, in fact, both of the women had their problems, but both of the women were great heroes that were deserving of restitution for the monies they spent. 
You mentioned that today uh, Claire is memorialized in uh, at, at the U.S. Embassy in the Philippines that they have a, a room named after her, her portrait hangs. It, it, it seems that in the end she, she gets this recognition, but her life ends rather early and, 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 and it, it kind of really tails off after that failed court case. Sadly, the court case ends in 1957. She is, she is given the, the minimum that she can be offered. I think it was about $1,400, which in, in current money is about $10,000. Uh, she probably spent a lot more, but more than the, 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 the money that, um, provided, she, her reputation and, um, w- was shattered, um, and, uh, she was embittered. Um, uh, she, she, um, really never uh, recovered from those days and uh she she never got a she occasionally after that she was still on on the the speaking circuit but she had little money uh she her last recorded uh job was as a waitress uh in back in Portland Oregon and um little little is heard of her in the in the mid mid to late 1950s until there's there's a uh, an obituary that 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 appears in 1960 in in, in a Portland uh, in the Portland Oregonian that Claire Phillips has died uh, 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 at the age of 53. Uh, it was a tragedy and uh, and uh, uh, almost forgotten uh, in the years since. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? I have one loose end to it that I'm working on on this story, actually. I've been working more specifically on the story of our wonderful um, unsung hero, Chick Parsons. And, I, and I've just been finishing up a magazine piece about Chick Parsons, which is going to be coming out in the Smithsonian uh, that goes beyond um, this, the story of, of the, that I was able to tell uh, in the book with new information, including um, – uh, an oral history that I found of, uh, in which he describes his life. Uh, I could just say that Chick Parsons is kind of like this aw shucks, Jimmy Stewart type character that, that is larger than life and uh, had the privilege of, of also talking to one of his sons, Peter Parsons, who, who has helped me gather up biographical information. He's a fabulous person, one of the great spies of World War II and needs to be known better. That's in Smithsonian in the September issue. I'm also writing a, a book that's that's coming out later in the year. Uh, it's a departure, uh, writing it with a with a uh, a, uh, a friend who's a professor of of uh, history, and it's it's called Cuba Libre. It's a history of Cuba. Well, those both sound like fantastic projects. I can't wait to read them. Peter, thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. It's been my great pleasure. Thanks a lot.